calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Howdy, I'm Brittany Ross, and I play the fiddle. And I'm Catherine Flincham, and I play the pipe. And together we're fiddle and pipe. Two classical musicians reading beyond the staff. And beyond genres, from fiction and fantasy to memoirs and self-help. Books that we've read so far have been Twilight, The Hobbit, Atomic Habits. The subtle art of not giving a fuck, do nothing, and we're currently reading the opposite of butterfly hunting. Maybe we've added a little Fifty Shades of Grey, too, just for your pleasure. Oh, that's spicy. So grab a book. Take a seat, find us on your favorite streaming app, and tune in. Okay, thanks, bye! Hello, bonjour, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is our international season. This is... I think we're into something like the fifth month of the international season, which is for sure the longest season that I've done, but the stories are all so good, I can't stop. And also, I've started doing these multi-part episodes. Like, we just finished, there's Catalina de Arauso, three parts, Christine of Sweden, four parts, and this one is, this is part one of X. I'm not sure how many we're going to get into, because this is a story that just came up and grabbed me. I had the whole season already planned out. And then a couple weeks ago, I was, I follow a bunch of different Instagram accounts that do like pictures of women from history. And this one just caught my eye. I saw a portrait of this woman. The portrait was interesting because her hair, which was dark brown, regardless of that, looked a lot like Sailor Moon. She kind of had big, like, what are they called? Like cosmic buns, like buns on top of her head. And then pigtails coming out of the buttons. And I was like, well, who is this Renaissance-era Sailor Moon type person? And I just kind of went to the Wikipedia because, you know, the the little thing underneath said, like, this is Hortense Mancini. And she was a uh, whatever. And I'm like, okay, but what's her deal? Her Wikipedia was amazing. And I was like, there's a story here. And what what a story it is. The, this is part one. And also, I pronounced her name intentionally incorrectly just now. When you see it written out, it looks like Hortense Mancini, but in fact, it is pronounced Hortense because that is a French name. And because she's an Italian person, her last name is Mancini. 
not Mancini. And if you're like, well, why did she have a French first name and an Italian second name? And the answer is international reasons. So we're going to get into this episode, Hortense Mancini, part one, my sources. The main source is a book that just came out in 2020. I think only in the UK. I had to order it online. She's mentioned in a number of other books that I've also looked at. But this one from 2020, I found the most kind of even keeled and the least judgmental about her. So it's a book called Mistresses, Sex and Scandal at the Court of Charles II by Linda Porter. And I super recommend it. I'll put the link in the show notes underneath. So yes, we are going to be getting to the Court of Charles II in England, not in this part, probably not in part two. She lived an international life, and that's where I think this fits in with our, our theme this season. But also, I was just like, I have to tell you the story. The Tits Out Brigade needs to know about this literal Tits Out woman who has numerous Tits Out type portraits. So that book is my main book-related reference for this episode. For future episodes, I'll be looking at other things too, but this is, this is beginnings. This is Hortense Mancini, The Beginnings, origin story. I also got some facts from Britannica.com and from Wikipedia.com. And I also really want to mention, I don't always do content warnings for this podcast. I talked about this a bit in one of the Njinga episodes too, just because there's a certain amount of stuff that just is in every episode and eventually it's like, why? It's just content warning to listen to this podcast ever. Like there's going to be you know, non-consensual genitalia examinations. There's going to be poisoning. There's going to be murder. There's going to be pandemics. There's going to be plagues. There's going to be men who are terrible. There's going to be women who are terrible. Those things just kind of happen all the time. But this episode, similar to the Countess of Castlehaven, one from the Lady Jane Grey season, like we're going to be talking about an abusive marriage with a really controlling man. So if you're not in the headspace to listen to that, Please know I'm going to give you a heads up when we like get into that part of the story. The whole first part of this, not that. Like the whole first part of this episode, not that. But once this guy comes on the scene, I will let you know. And like, you know, you can switch out of this podcast at that point. You know, listen to, I don't know, some smooth jazz or whatever you like to listen to. But no, even if you choose not to listen to the abusive marriage stuff, the next part, part two, is gonna, I mean whatever, spoiler warning, like this episode ends with her leaving the abusive man. So we're going to talk about this terrible marriage towards the end of the episode. In part two, she will have already have left him. So I think you can jump back in at that point. You don't need to skip part two necessarily or whatever you want to do. You know, I don't tell you what to do. So Hortense, our heroine. So she was born with an Italian name, which was Hortensia Mancini. She was born in Rome, June 6th, 1646. So where this places her on our vulgar history timeline, an increasingly long spreadsheet that I have sorted by birth date. So she was born 1646. So people who were alive at that time. Um, La Voisin was alive in France at that same time. Guess who's going to have a guest appearance in a later Hortense episode? Not this one, but later on is La Voisin. So there's going to be a crossover moment there as well. Um, Hortense was born in 1646. That's 20 years after Christina of Sweden. So around the same time Christina of Sweden was abdicating is when Hortense was born. And guess what? They're also going to have a crossover moment. Christina of Sweden is going to have a guest appearance again in a later part of this as well. Anne I of England, who I did, or of Britain, I guess, 
who did the episode about ages ago. She's the one from the movie The Favorite. She was born in 1665. So that's like 20 years later. Guess what? She's also going to have a guest appearance. This is where I'm just like, Hortense is like, if you make a spider web of people who have talked about on this podcast, like Hortense kind of connects everybody to everybody. SD, she was born 20 years later as well. So just so many vulgar history people were around existing. Like, I'm just looking now at like the death dates of people. So so Njinka is still alive at this point. Catalina de Arauso, still alive in Rome. Maybe she saw a little baby Hortense. I don't know. Um, Lucy Hay, still alive. Yeah, it's uh, quite an era of just all these vulgar history people coexisting, many of them wearing pants in disguise across Europe. So that's where we are. She's born in Rome. Her parents were Lorenzo Mangini and Ironima Mazzarini. So her parents came from the lower ranks of Roman nobility but were only distantly connected to the leading Italian aristocratic families. So they're like not the most rich, wealthy. I think they were kind of like not especially rich or wealthy, but they had, it's that thing where it kind of like, you have kind of the power and the influence, but not the money, where it's like, you kind of rather have the money. So her father, Lorenzo, what I wrote down here is he was a necromancer and astrologer. And we've had some other, especially in La Voisin, we talked about, necromancy and astrology and stuff. So I'm going to guess he was just that same sort of, you know, doing stuff with herbs and like, you know, telescopes. I don't know, like looking at like body parts and trying to do magic with them or whatever. So that's what he was up to. Her mother, Ironima, this is the connection to someone else who you already know about from the Christina episode, which is Cardinal Mazarin over in France. So Cardinal Mazarin is the one was kind of working with Christina for a minute when they were going to take over Naples together, but then Christina kind of burned that bridge and he ghosted her by claiming he had gout. And then once she left France, he's like, guess what? I don't have gout anymore. So Colonel Mazarin was, we're going to talk to him about him in this episode. Like I'll explain his backstory a bit better, but this is the main power connection of the Mancini family to any power really. So her mother was the younger sister of Cardinal Mazarin. So if that connection did not exist, if Mazarin was not as powerful as he was in France, then Hortense and her siblings would probably have just like grown up in Rome, getting a convent education, and then going on to get some sort of like okay marriage and leading quiet lives of respectability. That is not what happened. So we'll get to her uncle in a sec, but I need to talk about her sibling group. And I've been trying to think of a comparison that's not the Kardashians, But the only other comparisons I can think of are, I don't know, like, you tell me, you tell me, what are some groups of famous sisters from history or from literature? Like, when I think of a group of famous sisters, like, groups of sisters, like, the Kardashians are kind of it. But in history, in English history, I guess, there's, like, the Bronte sisters, or in literature, there's, like, the sisters in Little Women, or you've got the, like, Pride and Prejudice sisters. It's, like, Hortense was a member of a similar group of just, like, cool sisters. So she was the second youngest of six siblings to survive childhood. There were two others who passed away as children. And they all had Italian names, but then they went to France and their names became French names. So I'm gonna, like, I don't know. I'm gonna go back and forth with what they're called. So the oldest sister was Laura, who, when she went to France, became Laure Victoire. And then there's Olympia, who when she went to France became Olympe. There's Marie, who, like, that's a French name. Like, why, 
that was her name. I don't know. Uh, Philippe, or I guess Philippe, who is the only boy. He's the Bramwell Bronte slash Rob Kardashian in the situation. And not just because he's the only boy, but also personality-wise. So Hortense is the second youngest. And then the youngest is Marianne. So there's, there's Marie, and there's also Marianne. And then they were also close in age to two cousins who were called Anne-Marie and Laura also, other Laura. So a lot of name repeating. Thank God our main girl is called Hortense. No one else has that name. So altogether, the girls, like the four sisters and their two cousins, no, the five girls and their two cousins became, once they hit France, they became known as the Mazarinettes after their uncle, Cardinal Mazarin. So they were a powerful and glamorous group of socialites on the French social scene, the Mazarinettes. So why did they move from Rome to France? Kind of all at once. It was because their uncle, Cardinal Mazarin, had summoned them all to Paris in order to use his influence to gain them advantageous marriages, which is, that happened. They all, one after another, all were married to people that he chose, Uh, which is not to say that any of those marriages worked out especially well. I guess some of them did. Notably, two of them didn't. And one of those is the marriage of Hortense. But again, I'll let you know when we get to that point, because right now she's just a little kid. So we need to dig into the Cardinal Mazarin of it all to really appreciate Hortense's story and how this, how it'll happen. So as you may recall from his appearances in the Christina of Sweden episodes, Colonel Mazarin was an extremely important and powerful person in France in this era. So at the time that the Mancinis left Rome to live in France, their uncle was chief minister to the French king. And the French king at this time was Louis XIV, who was at this point a little boy. So as we've seen so many times in so many episodes, when the king is a little kid, the real power rests with whoever the regents are. And in this situation, that was Cardinal Mazarin, along with Louis's mother, Anne of Austria. So Cardinal Mazarin was not just the leading politician in France, but one of the foremost statesmen in Europe. Having no children of his own, he was determined that his legacy would live on through the marriages of his nieces. Again, he kind of gave up on Philippe, who was... I have sympathy for Philippe, but Mazarin was not a fan of his one nephew. So he had been born, he was Italian, and he had been born Giulio Mazzarini. And he worked his way up through jobs at the Vatican until he became a cardinal. He was handsome, witty, and prided himself on having risen up through his own resources. He was a big, you know, like bootstraps kind of person, rather than through family connections. But it was true. His family did not have those connections. He is the one who made those connections for his younger family members. His mentor had been Cardinal Richelieu, who you may know as the villain from The Three Musketeers. And it was under his influence that Giulio Mazzarini changed his name to Jules Mazarin, and he took French citizenship. So Richelieu died at around the same time as Louis XIII. So that's the dad of the boy king. And at that point, Mazarin stepped up to serve alongside like the boy's mother, as the basically the regent to the new boy king. So Louis XIV's mother is Anne of Austria, who is actually Spanish. Don't worry about it. She's a Habsburg. So there were rumors that these two were lovers, Mazarin and Anne of Austria. Maybe they were. I doubt it, because she was the queen and she wasn't going to like fuck up her bag. But also because the biggest love of Mazarin's life was his art collection and power. They didn't get along with each other at first, 
But then they got together through this thing called the Fronde, which was kind of like the English Civil War, where people kind of turned against the royal family and Mazarin, except the monarchy won. And just going through that together, trauma bonded these two. So they became very close. They supported each other. And she was supportive of him bringing of his Italian nieces to royal court and elevating them through marriages. And so, Hortense arrived, aged six, to France. She arrived with a big group of Mazarinettes, so she came along with her sister Marie, who is, I think, like, 14-ish at the time. Their mother, Ironima, came along, and also their cousins, Anne-Marie, and other Laura. The youngest sister, Marianne, was just four and stayed behind in Rome for now, so upon landing, they went to stay in the south of France with Hortense's oldest sister, formerly Laura, but now Laure Victoire, who was 17 and had been married to a much older French man for a while. Like She'd been in France for four years already. And so she kind of coached the whole family how to behave at French court, maybe help them improve their spoken French. I'm sure there's lots of weird etiquette they needed to know. And that took eight months. And once they had learned this etiquette and how to speak French, Hortense and family moved on to Paris, where they stayed with their uncle at his house, the Palace Mazarin, which was literally a palace. This was a magnificent palace built just for him, and it contained his pride and joy, his art collection, which was the finest of anyone in Europe at that point. And I believe he had purchased it, not like Christina of Sweden, who just looted things from various places. So it was like an incredible, it was like the Louvre, but his house like it had statues and paintings i don't have a list in front of me but you know like all the italian masters and french they like it was an incredible collection so in the christine of sweden story i don't think i said this but when she first went to meet him he had said you can come but you can't bring anyone with you and that wasn't just because he like wanted to keep the conversation private it was because his art collection was so important to him, he didn't want just, like, anyone to see it. Like, you had to be a king or a queen to, like, even see the art that he owned. So, that's where they moved. And he just kept going with the, like, marriage arranging of all the nieces. So he arranged a marriage for Anne-Marie, who was Hortense's cousin. She was 16 years old. That marriage was, she was married to a prince. But in the middle of this, like, it wasn't just, like, boom, 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 like, assembly line marriage creation. Things were not... Uh, there's some stress, there's some fractures going on in Hortense's immediate family, namely that her mother was at war with her 15-year-old sister, Marie. Marie, also great. In a sort of like Fredegund Brunhilde moment, like I came across Hortense first, but Marie is just as interesting. Marie is just as tits out. One of the books that I've been reading is a co-biography of Hortense and Marie. I stand Marie. She's great, but Hortense was my way into this story, so like Marie's gonna be here, don't worry about it, but Hortense is the main character. So at this point, Hortense is six, Marie is 15, and Marie is rebellious and just fighting with her mom all the time. And I think part of what they were fighting about, or maybe because they're fighting all the time, it sounds like Marie was dealing with some disordered eating issues. And so Mazarin was like, you're too skinny to find a good husband. And the mother is like, why don't you eat more food? And it's like, that's not helping. So... They were just fighting all the time. And so they sent Marie off to live in a convent for a while to try and like fatten her up, I guess, to try and get a better marriage for her and to try to make her be less rebellious. Hortense went along with her as a companion. And actually, this is the first of several cool experiences at convents in this story that Hortense is going to encounter. 
so it's kind of like I've got so many Easter eggs for you of just like past episodes of this podcast, but I feel like so many of you have like binged the whole thing in a row. You'll know what I'm talking about. Do you remember in the Fredigan story, there's a whole thing about Brunhilde. I think it was Brunhilde was sent to live in this convent, but then all the other nuns there were cool and then they like worked together. And anyway, it's kind of that. It's like a cool vibe convent. This situation is. It's not like a how do you solve a problem like Maria sound of music type thing like these this was an okay situation they weren't the nuns were much kinder to marie than the mom was being so they're at this convent hortense and marie both wound up getting a much better education than they'd had access to back in rome because again kind of in that child star way like they hadn't been given an excellent education because they're being brought up just to be married off kind of like how child stars they get like tutored on set so maybe they don't quite get as good an education as people who go to school school but here, ironically, when they were supposed to be punished, they actually wound up getting a better education. So they stayed there for 18 months. And just being there together, these two, you know, they're a group of numerous sisters, but these two cemented an extremely strong sisterly bond that would carry on through the rest of their lives. Again, Marie is going to recur in this and later portions of the story as well. So their mother was ill, but... That didn't make her and Marie get along any better. And why would it? Unless the mother, like, in her illness, decided to start being nicer. And so the mother, like, she died without ever reconciling with Marie. But meanwhile, um, the other Mazarinettes, the cardinal was arranging them all marriages. So the next oldest sister, Olympe, got married to a prince as well. This left just three Mazarinettes to pair up. So Marie, Hortense, and Marianne, the youngest, who's now in France as well. Hortense was her uncle's favorite, which not necessarily a good thing to be the favorite of this kind of controlling, awful person. But I wrote here, Hortense was her uncle's favorite, which wasn't necessarily a good thing because he was kind of evil. So she was at this point like nine years old and already was considered the most beautiful of all the Mazarinettes. So just, I don't know, like I saw the portrait of her and I was like, oh, who's this? I wasn't like, oh, she's pretty. I was like, oh, Sailor Moon hair. But there's something captivating about her. She has a lot of portraits painted of her, like a lot of people. If you know the story of Evelyn Nesbitt, which I thought once about doing on this podcast, but I'm not going to because it's really depressing. But she was just like a a normal, non-rich American girl in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. But then just when photography was being invented, a photographer saw, oh, she's really beautiful. And then just she came across so well in photos. She became kind of the first supermodel. So Hortense is just, I think her beauty was kind of like with Evelyn Nesbitt or like Marilyn Monroe. It's like a bit of a curse. I think like it brings her so much attention, a lot of it unwanted. Anyway, so she's the most beautiful. They're all beautiful. It's like, we're the Mazarinettes. Look out. She's nine. She's nine years old and already the most beautiful. Anyway, and why the uncle liked her so much was because she wasn't like silly and romantic like Marie was. So kind of like in a Narnia thing with like Susan versus Lucy, Hortense was more of a Lucy and Marie was more of a Susan because she just was very prone to uh, romantic ideas. And Mazarin was like, no time for that. I got to marry you all off to people for like legacy reasons. But also Hortense, like Marie, neither of them was very well, I don't know, like, it's described sometimes in books as like, they're not well behaved, but it's like they were just doing their own thing. They were not behaving the way that the people who monitored them wanted them 
to be behaving. So Colonel Mezara hired a governess who was really a spy, who would report to him everything they did, and he was trying to keep them in line. But even with this supervision, Marie still fell in love with King Louis XIV, who is at this point also a teenager. So, tangent. Marie was not, or she did not at this point become Louis's mistress, but rather they are one another's first loves. Mazarin didn't like this because he hadn't made it happen. He wanted to choose their husbands. They couldn't just like fall in love themselves. But also Louis's mother, Anne of Austria, didn't like this either. Because both Mazarin and Anne of Austria were like, well, these two can never get married, so we need to, like, stop this. And the reason they couldn't get married was because, although Mazarin was powerful, he was still unpopular. Like, if it looked like he was trying to make his niece the new queen, that would be used. It would look like he was reaching too hard and his enemies would turn against him. Anne of Austria herself said to him, I warn you that all of France would revolt against you and against him, her son, the king and that I will put myself at the head of the rebels to restrain my son. So it's just like, Louis was going to marry royalty, not like Mazarin's niece. But Marie and Louis were just like besotted with each other. Marie held out hope that they could be married. She confided in Hortense because they were like sisters and best friends. And Hortense later, she wrote her memoirs. Marie did too. But Hortense wrote like she didn't really understand like what was going on because she Ordance was just a more pragmatic person she was not prone to these romantic ideals so it's very much like marie is like a catherine gray type and Ordance is like a jane gray type marie wound up banished from court because it was affecting the chances of louis making like marrying someone else if she was standing around all the time like making heart eyes at him and he's making heart eyes at her so marianne was in town as well as i said so the three sisters hung out together, not at court. Like, I guess Marie was banished and the other two got to go along with her. So they were hanging out at this, I don't know, country house somewhere. Marie was sending super secret sexy letters back and forth with the king. Hortense knew about this. She knew it wasn't going to end very well because she was astute. Yeah, she was whatever, you know, 10 years old, but perceptive. Eventually, Louis came to visit Marie, and they both agreed they had to end the relationship. It's very heartbreaking. Hortense witnessed this happen, and I think, I don't know, I don't want to be, like, so facile to be, like, and that imprinted on her, and that's why she just, like, wasn't a romantic person. But I think this just, like, it, like, confirmed to her that she's, like, this life, the life of being, like, a Mazarinette, is not about falling in love, and falling in love will only kind of get in the way. Marie was so heartbroken about having to break up with him having to accept like she could never marry her true love, Louis. So she went to Mazarin and was like, can you please just marry me off quickly so I can like distract me or whatever and like help heal my broken heart. And if Austria wanted Marie banished from the country so as not to tempt Louis anymore. And so Mazarin figured out a win-win situation in this situation, I guess, where Marie was married off to an Italian prince and she moved to Rome or she was going to move to Rome. She didn't want to leave her sister's because she would miss Hortense so much, so she delayed as long as she could. But eventually she left to go to Rome, and we'll catch up with Marie in part two. Yeah, so Hortense was seeing all this happening, and I feel like she was just, she just got it more than her sisters did. Like, not just her being like, oh, I'll never fall in love. Like, this isn't a story about, like, a person who's, like, never wants to fall in love and then does against their will. Like, that's not where this is going. This is, like, Hortense saw this happen, and she was like, okay, like, she understood how their uncle was manipulating things. She kind of figured out what this life was all about 
and she didn't she just understood it better than the others did so yeah so she's like really smart and really astute but she wasn't like a mary bennett type you know just being all like or like a jane gray type just being all like book smart and sort of bristly she was also a girly girl she loved being at royal court she loved all the attention she received being a mazarinette she was also cool and charismatic and fun and beautiful person. So not just beautiful, you know, facially. Like, she just had a real charisma where she became the star of court. Like, everyone just thought she was, like, the best of all of her sisters, the most interesting, the most fun. Maybe that's why she was Mazarin's favorite, because she was just the best one. And so he really wanted to find her the best husband of all the husbands. So he was, at this point, slowly dying. He had to figure out who his heir was going to be. So he didn't have any children of his own. He had all these nieces, the Mazarinettes, plus Philippe, but like he, Philippe doesn't count. Philippe is just like, again, just a real Bramwell Bronte type. So he wanted to find a husband for Hortense who would then become his heir, like find a man who would change his last name to Mazarin. So there were lots of people who wanted to marry Hortense, obviously because she was the coolest person there, even though she was like 14. And she's not just the coolest, prettiest person there, but she also had, like, if she, if whoever married her was going to become the heir of Mezran, they were going to inherit the palace, all the art, like, so much money, so she was an heiress. Very appealing. And, in fact, one of her suitors was a certain Charles Stuart, who is the man who is going to later become England's King Charles II. But at this point, he was just a king on the run. Side note on Charles Stuart. I mentioned him a bit in the Christina episode, but he gets more important in the story. Like if you remember, one of my sources is a book about the mistresses of Charles II. So Charles Stuart was the son of Charles I of England. He was the grandson of James I and of Denmark's gay husband. So James I was the first Stuart king of England. And then Charles I was the second Stuart king of England. Charles Stuart so he would have been at this point, at the point that he was pursuing a marriage to Hortense, he would have been the King of England, but he was not because Oliver Cromwell had taken over England 10 years ago and Charles had been on the run ever since. And I find this such a fun story and we're doing a multi-part episode, so there's time. Here's some fun facts about Charles's time on the run. In 1646, when his father was first captured by Oliver Cromwell, Charles went into exile to Sicily, then to France, where his mother was already living under the protection of her cousin, Louis XIV, who was at this point. This is like a flashback. Um, he was eight years old at that point, you know, 10 years before he fell in love with Marie Mancini. So the reason he's on the run is because Oliver Cromwell took over England and Charles, Charles Stuart, is like the heir to the throne. So as long as he's alive, Oliver Cromwell can't fully rest comfortably because Charles could come back and make himself be king at any point or try to. So Charles then went to The Hague. He's like 18 years old, by the way, Charles, when he's doing all this stuff. So he went to The Hague, where he worked on a diplomatic solution to try and get his father freed, but this did not work. His father was executed, and Charles became the new king, like, in name only, aged 18. He went to Scotland, where after some back and forth, he was provided with a Scottish court, and he was crowned king of Scotland. Then there was a big battle, he lost, and he fled to Normandy, and he had to go incognito, which was very hard because, uh, so you know what he looks like. He looks like, he looks like Captain Hook 
is what he looks like. He has like long black hair. He's like really tall. He's like six foot two or something in an era in which the average height of a man was something like five foot five. He stood out in a crowd, Charles Stewart. He was very identifiable looking. There's also at this point a thousand pound reward for his head, like for anyone who killed him and anyone who helped him would be punished by death. So he's just this like big bird of a person just like running around and it's like we need to disguise this person. Here's how he escaped. It's a great story. So he had trusted allies this whole time and so they headed off under darkest night and because he needed to disguise himself so he they helped him disguise himself as a farm laborer in leather doublet, a pair of green breeches, and a jump coat of the same green, an old gray greasy hat without a lining, and a noggin shirt of the coarsest linen. And one of his helpers cut his hair, and I guess what the like farm laborer hairstyle was, which was short on top but long at the sides, aka a mullet. So in the pouring rain, he was moved. So he'd been staying in a priory, and then he, which is like a nun place, I think. And he went to hide on the grounds, like amidst the trees. So a company of local militia stopped by asking, had the king been seen? And the helpers were like, yeah, he was here, but he moved on. And the soldiers were like, okay. And his helpers taught him how to speak with a local accent. Because if you picture, I don't know, you know, like the modern day royals, like Prince William having to go undercover in, you know, rural England somewhere, it's like your accent makes you stand out, sir. So he learned how to speak with a local accent and how to walk like a laborer. Even his walk had to be changed. There's no safe way to get him to London, like where he would, you know, challenge Carmel or whatever. But they knew of a man whose house had several hiding places. But when they got there, the house was no longer safe. Like the soldiers thought about it. So he hid in a barn. Baby Jesus vibes. Then they walked along a stream. Like, I'm going to keep going with this story, but here's where... Like, I'm impressed by Charles's resiliency. There's other men we've talked about on this podcast, other, other people of various genders who would not have been as good as him at just, like, keeping going in these circumstances. So, you know, like, wanted, looking wildly distinctive. So he was walking along a stream. Feet were sore and bleeding because he was so tall. His feet were so big. Like, nobody's shoes fit him because no one had feet that size because of, like, the farm laborers were undernourished or whatever. Yeah, so he sore, blister-filled feet, but he kept going. So then he spent a day hiding in an oak tree. And if you go to, God, I forget where they are, somewhere in England. If you go, well, if you go through the like Wikipedia page about like Charles on the run, there's a lot of details that I'm not telling you right now, but basically every place he stopped is now like a historical site, including this tree. So he spent a day hiding in a tree while the troops were searching the surrounding woodland, they did not find him. He slept for part of the time, but one of his pals was up the tree with him, who would keep him from like falling out of the tree, I guess, while he was asleep in a tree. After some more close calls, he disguised himself as a servant, and he was dressed as a tenant farmer's son and adopted the alias William Jackson. But at their next stop, his horse lost a shoe, so playing the role of servant, he took the horse to a blacksmith. Later, he recounted the story, and he said, As I was holding my horse's foot, I asked the smith, What news? He told me there was no news that he knew of, since the good news of the beating of the rogues of the Scots. I asked him whether there was none of the English taken that joined with the Scots. He answered he did not hear if that rogue, Charles Stewart, was taken. 
but some of the others he said were taken. I told him if that rogue were taken, he deserved to be hanged more than all the rest for bringing in the Scots. Upon which he said, I spoke like an honest man, and so we parted. So this is like another Catalina de Arauso level person on the run in disguise and just no one ever realizes that they're the person they're looking for. This is an ongoing thing this season that I find very enjoyable. Uh, Further along the route, so he's still in disguise as a servant and so they stopped at a house. And so you know when like fancy people and their servants stop at a house like in Downton Abbey, like the servants go hang out with other servants. So he was put to work in the kitchen um, and he was clumsy at the tasks and the cook angrily asked him, what countrymen are you that you know not how to wind up a jack, which is like a thing to roast meat in the fireplace. But Charles was like, oh, I'm the son of poor people, so I rarely ate meat and I don't know how to use a roasting jack. And everyone's like, okay, tall guy. More adventures happened. Then they arrived in a town full of troops who were like looking for him. And he boldly walked through the soldiers to the inn and arranged for rooms. The soldiers were just like, well, the guy we're looking for is long hair. That guy has a mullet. Here we And look at how he walks. He walks like a farm laborer. The person at the inn confronted him, though, saying, I know your face. And Charles was like, me, I'm William Jackson. And he convinced him that he had been a servant at the same time as the servant at somebody else's house. Like, he's good at this. This is like Christina of Sweden wishes she was this good at this. They didn't go to London. Eventually, they fled and they went to France, which is where he still was. All this had happened to him. And now it's 1658. Hortense is 12. And Charles is like, asked Mazarin, like, could I marry this beautiful young child? And Mazarin was like, no, you're like, it's like, no one thought Charles was going to overtake Cromwell. Like, it seemed incredibly unlikely. And Mazarin was like, I'm going to find someone better than you, like, king without a kingdom. But surprise, two years later, he was king of England again. And at that point, Mazarin was like, hey, so do you still want to marry Hortense? And Charles was like, screw you, no. Um, partially because of how Louis and France hadn't really helped him in like winning back England. So anyway, that's the last we'll see of Charles in this story for now. But spoiler, he is going to come back again in a big way in, I'm going to guess, Hortense part three. So... Every eligible man in Europe wanted to marry Hortense, who was 14, by the way, basically. But then the stakes kind of increased. So Mazarin was ill. He was like, his illness was progressing and he really wanted to sort this out before he died. Like he wanted his will to say like, so-and-so is my heir. So he had to find a husband. Louis XIV got married. And that also added an extra challenge to this because Mazarin had been sometimes sort of like, Thinking about maybe they could, whoever Louis married, like maybe that person had a brother and that brother could marry Hortense sort of thing. So the pressure is on for Mazarin to pick a husband for Hortense. And here's, I'm going to give you a content warning because the person he chose was incredibly abusive. So if you want a piece out of the episode, like hands on, tits out, please come back for, I think part two, you'll find enjoyable because she will have left this husband, but now we're getting into the part of her with the husband. So yeah, I'll just take a moment if you want to like pause out of this podcast and then I'm going to jump back in for the people who are sticking with the story. Okay, so there's this podcast I listen to called Behind the Blinds, which it's, so Troy and Kelly, the hosts, they talk about contemporary celebrities by looking at blind items about them. So you know, stuff where it's like this 
A-list 90s sitcom star was seen without her wedding ring. Like, is she getting divorced or whatever? So they really, it's, um, it's almost like an academic discussion of celebrities and like what potentially they're real, what they're really up to. Anyway, so they end every episode by deciding between themselves, is this person rotted or not? And rotted just means someone who is just like so awful, someone who just like, it's a rotten person, like somebody who is just like their exposure to this celebrity lifestyle or even just, I don't know, the amount of power they got, you know, like, I don't know, like a Harvey Weinstein, Simon Cowell, like these people are just like rotted individuals. And they recently on this podcast, Behind the Blinds, they did an episode talking about Ezra Miller, the current celebrity with many controversies happening around them. And I thought that they explained it really well, this sort of like people who do shitty things often, that's because shitty things had happened to them or these people. You can understand the emotional trauma response that might have resulted in the way that people are behaving now, but they really drew a line for themselves in this podcast talking about like, but at the point where it's hurting other people. Like you can explain why someone's acting some way and that's because of their, the way they grew up or whatever, like these traumas that happened to them. But that's not an excuse for being a horrible person. And so this brings me to Hortense's husband, Armand Charles de la Porte de la Mayeray, who we're going to call AC, many apologies to AC Slater from Save by the Bell. So he is a person with serious psychological things going on in his brain and he is a powerful man a powerful um aristocrat in this era and so he had a lot of power and not a lot of checks and balances on his power so the this sort of like problematic personality turned into a real horror show for hortense and everyone around him so I don't want to diagnose him, whatever. I'm just going to like focus on the shitty things he did because he was a shitty person. So Armand Charles, AC, was a young man, young, comparatively. He's 29, Hortense is 14. So he's like young compared to older people, old compared to her. So he was from a family with undistinguished origins, similar to Mazarin. So Mazarin, that might have appealed to him as a suitor. And the thing with AC is that he had been obsessed. Like, I'm not using that in an exaggerated way. He had been literally, like, forensically obsessed with Hortense since he first saw her when she was nine and he was 24. And now he's 29 and she's 14. And he had been trying and trying and trying and trying to be, to get her hand in marriage, not because he wanted her inheritance, not because he wanted the glamour of being a family, not because he wanted to be the heir of Mazarin, but because he was literally her stalker. So yeah, AC was one of the richest men in Europe. And he was a nephew of Cardinal Richelieu. So maybe there's also that connection because that had been Mazarin's mentor. AC, very intense, not very pleasant to be around, not popular on the scene, which doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad person, but in this case, it does. He was an outsider among the young, pretty party crowd where Hortense liked to spend her time and where people all adored her. He was also Catholic. Everyone in the story is Catholic because it's aristocrats in France in the 1600s. But he was getting more extreme with it, which people found annoying because I think he would just sort of like 
like to mansplain about it all the time. But it might have been his like non-corruptedness that Mazarin also liked. Like he was just seemed like so hardcore religious. Hortense didn't care much about religion. And she was all about having fun and whatever. And so maybe he thought a husband like AC would keep her in line or something. It's weird. Like three different books I read all said like Mazarin was like, he had like dementia and he was like dying. And so they're like, that must be why he chose this guy to be her husband. Because otherwise he wouldn't have. Like people really turning themselves around to try and find like a reason why Mazarin chose this guy to be the husband, even though he was a bad choice. And it's like, maybe Mazarin just sucked and that's it. Like, even AC's father was like, <laughs> my son is kind of the worst. I don't recommend him as a husband or an heir. Um, please don't marry this teenage girl to him. But Mazarin was like, meh, no, let's do it. And so this happened. So I think Hortense had just turned 15 by the time they got married. AC was 29. And so they got married. Eight days later, Mazarin died. And then Hortense and AC they now were his heirs, like AC changed his last name. Like they are now the Duke and Duchess of Mazarin. And Hortense, she later wrote her memoir. That's part of how we know a lot of what was going on inside of her head and what she was thinking about stuff. So she wrote that when this happened, like the marriage and then become the heiress, she wrote that this made her the richest heiress and the unhappiest woman. Also when Mazarin died, she wrote about how neither she nor her sisters or her brother, none of them grieved him in any real way because he'd always treated them pretty cruelly, um, just acted like he didn't treat them like people. She wrote in her memoir, if you knew with what severity he treated us at all times, you would be less surprised by this lack of grief. Never has a man had such gentle manners in public and such harsh ones at home, and all our temperaments and inclinations were contrary to his. Add to that incredible subjection under which he held us, our extreme youth, and the insensitivity and carelessness about everything which excessive wealth and privilege ordinarily cause in people of that age, however good nature they may have. So as much as Hortense is like a fun-loving girl, like she grew up in this being raised by Mazarin, um, having this governess who's also a spy. Like it was not, she found fun things. Like she liked being at court, going to parties, whatever. But it's like a pretty intense situation. And now she's married to AC. So they moved into the Mazarin palace, surrounded by her dead uncle's incredible art collection, etc. And Hortense... At least at first, she was still allowed to go to royal court where she was still a star. She, had, she sang, she played guitar. She, her spoken French was with just a slight Italian accent that people found charming. And she excelled at public life. She excelled at going to parties and being winning and fabulous. And so now that they had this palace, she invited over her like friends, party people to hang out in the palace with her. Um, Philippe moved into like another wing of the palace. And AC just, like, he watched and he was just like, mm. It's like in Moulin Rouge, the, is it the Duke who's like, she is mine. It's like, I just picture him like the Duke from Moulin Rouge, just like watching, hating anyone else paying attention to her. So yeah, now that he like, quote, had her, this like girl he had been obsessed with since she was nine years old, he didn't like seeing anyone else get to enjoy her company. He wanted her to be his own private little toy person. So very shortly after they got married, he began restricting where she could go and when, like with the help of her governess spy, he forbade her from having plays or concerts at their home and banned all of her favorite friends. Within a few months of their marriage, he forced her to accompany him on a trip out of town. So as part of being the heir to Mazarin, I think, or maybe he already had this, like they had 
he was like the landlord of a bunch of like little villages. And so he's just like, she's too much fun in Paris. I'm going to just like take her away from there. And effectively, every time Hortense found something or someone to enjoy, AC would notice and then take it away from her and not let her do that or see that person anymore. So Mesmer had hired the governess slash spy, but AC didn't think she was doing a good enough job, so he fired her and hired his own governess slash spy, who would report directly to him and would help him control what she was doing. She became pregnant and had their first child, Marie Charlotte, in 1662. AC's religious fervor kept getting more extreme. To the point, this is like, you know, in the Catalina story where it's like even the other conquistadors were like, ooh, you're like being a bit too cruel to like the indigenous people of South America. This is where even like the king of France was like, ooh, you're like getting a bit too extreme in your religious views. So this is again where AC was like, you know, he was a rich person, even if he was a bit of an outcast from society, husbands were expected to like control their wives, but he was like doing it a bit more than other people were. So the fact that even people in this culture were like, oh, this is a bit much speaks to how heinous he was. AC claimed that the angel Gabriel spoke to him in his dreams. And when he was visiting the like properties where they lived, where he made Hortense with him all the time, he obsessively interfered with the smallest details in the lives of the peasants who lived on his properties, wanting to help them walk the road to salvation. So this was like, he objected to having female servants in priests' households. He warned poor farm families not to let brothers and sisters share the same bed. He thought that the act of milking cows seemed too sexual. And so he warned milkmaids not to spend too long milking cows or churning butter to assume more modest postures when doing these acts. So he's a person who's like obsessed with sex and sees it everywhere and in a manner not unlike the current American Supreme Court, just really wants to get in everyone's business and control what everyone's doing and just like, fuck this guy. So he also enforced rules in his house. Everyone had to go to bed early. He discouraged conversation and laughter, and he would fire any servant who Hortense like smiled at effectively. So she wrote this, she described the situation as, just imagine an implacable hatred for everyone who loved me and whom I loved, an avid effort to set before me all the people I could not abide, and to bribe those whom I trusted the most in order to discover my secrets, if I had any, a tireless diligence in disparaging me to everyone and in putting a shameful cast on all my actions. In short, everything that the malice of a sanctimonious cabal can dream up and implement in a household where it holds tyrannical sway. And she had more children, and kind of every time... So he kept her away from Paris as much as possible, only brought her back in for the like delivery, because I guess that's where the better doctors or midwives were. So which was also dangerous to be like in labor going on like country roads or whatever. So she had a second daughter, Marie Anne, one year after Marie Charlotte. And then two years later, she had another daughter, Marie Olympe. Shortly after the birth of the third daughter, he took her out of town and kept her basically prisoner until she became pregnant again, and this time it was a son, Paul Jules. So, she was now like 20 years old. She had survived four pregnancies in five years, and having the heir, she's kind of like, okay, like, I've done that. Like, that's like, quote, my job. So she was eager to spend as little time with her husband as possible, obviously. Like many other women of her station, who after they gave birth to a son were able to move to separate households after giving birth, but... AC would not allow that. He became more possessive than ever convinced she was going to leave him. Oh, I forgot to mention this before, but part of his like 
thing of not wanting anyone to feel sexual desire at all ever. So he had all their female servants have their front teeth knocked out so they wouldn't look as physically attractive. He also, I think, wanted to do the same with his and Hortense's daughters. Like, he is a horrible person. Yeah, he removed anything he thought would help her leave him. Like, he was obsessed with the thought that she was going to leave him. Like, of course, she wanted to leave him. Like, the way to make her not leave him is to, like, not be awful. He didn't think of that. So the terms of Mazarin's will were pretty shitty. It was not a well-done will. So all of their inheritance was sort of joint. It's like everything was inherited by the pair of them. I don't know if that was Mazarin just on purpose wanting to make it so that Hortense could never leave him because she want, he wanted to like tame her or whatever. So if she did leave him, it'd be really complicated to divide the property between them because the will said they both jointly owned everything. And as a woman, she wouldn't get as much. The only thing that she actually owned, like the only kind of money to her name was her collection of jewels, which she owned outright. And so he knew that was her one source of potential money she could use to escape. And this is so much like stuff people talk about now about um, intimate partner violence and stuff where it's like, where a partner just tries to make it so the other person can escape by controlling their money and stuff. Like, it's just, it's the same shit then as happens to people now. So, um, one night when she was out somewhere that he allowed her to be, on the pretense that he was afraid she was so philanthropic that she might accidentally give away all of her money to too many people, he confiscated her jewels. Hortense was like, fuck this. And she went to go see her brother, Philippe, who was living in another wing of the mansion. And they sent for their sister, Marianne, who had also been married off to a guy, not a nightmare person. And both of them counseled her to just file for legal separation. Honestly, good for them. Good advice. Philippe was like, if she didn't file for separation soon, AC. And oh yeah, and he was spending all their money on just like wasteful, weird things. So like her inheritance was disappearing just because AC was spending it all. And so Philippe was like, the sooner the better, because like, in order to inherit as much money as possible, like you need to get rid of him now. And he also warned her if she didn't leave him, this would be her life forever. Like boring trips out of town, no fun ever, constantly being pregnant, like her life being controlled. And so he urged her to petition the king for legal division of property to safeguard at least her portion of the Mazarin fortune. But in order to do that, because the will was so badly done, so she would have had to have an exceptionally strong legal case. Hortense was like, I'm going to do it. I will do that. Like she's channeling the spirit of, of I'm going to say Fredigand. You remember when Fredigand had the court case and she brought in the like 300 witnesses or whatever? Like she was also in basically France. Hortense was just like, like Fredigand, I'm going to do this. She filed the paperwork and like hid out at her sister Olympe's house. She stayed there for two months and... Louis XIV was kind of like going through the paperwork, and then eventually he had the chief minister ordered her to return to AC. Like, this poor guy was the mediator in this situation where, like, no mediation is possible with a man like AC. So they said, like, you need to return to AC, but he should let you choose your own household servants. AC was not okay with this, so Hortense left again. Somewhere in here, um, the King Louis, he made some sort of promise that he would not interfere in their marriage arguments or something like that which becomes important later. Uh, he's just like, if you're having marital problems, like, okay, not my problem. Which was good in the sense that he wasn't going to force her to be with him, but it was bad in the sense of he wasn't going to like save her. So Hortense left him again 
Um, she went to stay with Olymp and refused to leave when AC came to like kidnap her back. And he was like, okay, you have two options then. Like either you can go to this one convent 10 miles outside of Paris where one of his relatives was in charge, or you can go stay with your older cousin, Anne-Marie. And this is like two bad options. So like, first of all, it's like going to the convent led by his relative. It's like, ooh, that doesn't sound appealing. But then also Anne-Marie's husband was extremely religious in the same manner as AC. So she would also be monitored there too. So Hortense chose the convent. So she was off of the convent for a while. And then AC wanted her to go with him on another like trip out of town. And so she petitioned the king to intercede. And he, what he did, the king was that he sent Hortense to a different convent where she could be more closely monitored. And this convent was kind of like a convent slash prison for wayward noble women. Hortense, at this point, she's like, again, whatever, like 21 or something, like mother of four. The children never really come up in this story. And in her defense, that was what society was like at that point. Mothers were not expected to especially be close to or care about their children. Do you remember? Like in circa the same era, Anne of Denmark, I think. Let me just check. Anne of Denmark was, I don't know, 75 years earlier. But, you know, everyone thought it was so weird when Anne of Denmark wanted to like be with her children, breastfeed her children. Everyone's just like, what is wrong with you? This is gross and weird. Like, the fact that she's not being like, not without my children, doesn't speak poorly of her in the context of this era because um, children, <laughs> mothers weren't expected to especially care about their children, except for who their marriages were to. So she's just fleeing. The children are back there with, I guess, a governess slash spy. You know, I hope they're doing okay. Anyway, so she's just keeping trying to file paperwork. She decided to leave AC and she's just like doing it and she's not stopping trying. And while at the convent for wayward noble women, she met a new friend, Marie Sidonie de Courcel, who is 17 years old, also married, but her husband had brought a suit against her for adultery. So it's kind of like girl interrupted vibes of just like all the women at this convent were kind of like had been sent there because their husbands were mad at them, but that meant that all the women there were kind of like cool people. And so these two became fast friends and potentially lovers. I mean, maybe. We do know later, like just so in the midst of this like grim, dark special abuse plotline, like Hortense, she is going to eventually go on to have like numerous lovers of various genders. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that she and Marie Sidonie became lovers, but they certainly became very good friends. Historically, very good friends. Listen to that podcast. So Marie Sidonie knew about the legal system because she had been involved in her own trial and she also had some good connections to royal court, like better ones than Hortense had. And so she was able to advise her to prepare her case. And I think this would be a cute little movie of their friendship slash potentially sapphic love story. Like that'd be a cute movie. So sort of like portrait of a lady on fire vibes. These two had fun together. Like Hortense finally, I think it's like she had so much fun with her sisters. Now she's having fun with her friend slash maybe lover. So they allegedly were pulling pranks and just like having lots of fun stories of their resistance to the imprisonment and their fun-loving ways made it to the Paris Salon and Royal Court, where people were sympathetic to these two women with their terrible husbands. Although some of the rumors in her memoir, Marie was like, the rumors about us like putting, you know, ink in the like baptism font or like all these, whatever, like we were not that extreme, but maybe they were, I don't know. 
And so they placed a joint request to be transferred together to a different convent, and the nuns were only too happy to sign off on this because these two were a handful. And the convent where they wound up was the convent that AC had earlier wanted her to go to, which was run by his aunt. But again, we've got like a good convent story. So this abbey is called Shell. Maybe I'm saying that wrong had a long history of powerful women who had governed both the abbey and the community surrounding it. So it's kind of like a little feminist paradise. In its nearly thousand-year history, many generations of royal women had chosen to retire there. So it was actually like a cool place to be. AC demanded that his aunt return Hortense to him, and the aunt refused. So thank you, aunt, nun. Hortense and Marie Sidonie kept having their good times there. And again, stories spread through like important circles of influential people because like what they were up to, all these court cases, it's not just like, oh, look at these two like young women having fun in a convent. It's like, no, they're like pursuing these legal things. So at this time, not unlike our time, um, the legal rights of husbands over wives were being discussed. In the eyes of the law and marriage contracts, women were regarded as their husband's property but challenges to the status were being argued in court, and so these, this is very of the moment what they were up to. Hortense and Marie Sidonie continued working on their cases for legal separation, and it's not just like write a good legal brief or whatever, it's also like bribe the right people and like hope that the judge who's doing your case like is your uncle who likes you sort of situation, which again is not that different from now. So Hortense got a good verdict in one of her suits. The judges said she could return to the Palace Mazarin and AC had to leave. So like she could live there and he could leave. He was, of course, furious. And Hortense was like, I'm back, baby. So she returned to public life and court festivities. And she got permission for Marie Sidonie to move into Mazarin Palace with her. So she's got her bestie slash maybe lover there with her. She started hosting plays again. Like, she's just like getting her life back. I'm trying to guess her age. She's like 22 or so. So she's just like, this is her element. This is like self care for her, hosting parties, being with people. She's an extrovert. She loves it. AC couldn't handle it, though, non surprisingly. And so one day when people were not in the theater, he demolished the theater, like with his bare hands. I'm going to say yes, because later he's going to do something similar with his bare hands. So this guy, like, it's like in a horror movie. It's like the killer just doesn't stop and keeps coming after you. It's like he will not stop. But then Marie Sidonie reconciled with her husband, twist, and the king granted AC permission to return to his home and all hope seemed lost. Public sentiment turned against the two women because, like, happens now, you know, people are sympathetic to a cause but after a while you're just like "Mm, change your mind like we're bored of being sympathetic to you let's be sympathetic to the other person now it reminds me of this whole narrative this whole part of this narrative of a lot of what the story of britney spears has been like where she was like doing her own thing and then she was put in this horrible conservatorship by her father and by these companies who were exploiting her and stuff and people sympathized with her but then people turned on her and now people I don't know, and then she's freed and everyone's like so excited, but then she's like living her own life and people are like, how dare she have bikini pictures on Instagram? And it's like, just let people live. Like, just let people live. Anyway, so things were looking pretty shitty for Hortense, like, and she had lost the public sentiment, which also affected things because just like now, like judges would, they don't live in a bubble. Their decisions can be swayed by what the public wants them to do. So she had, she had to make a big move 
to escape this horrible situation, and that is what she did. She had endured seven years of marriage to AC. She's now 22 years old. Her vast fortune was like dissipated because he had like wasted it all. She was being held prisoner by a man whose one goal was to control her, and she knew he would never let her leave. Her main hope was that the king would keep his promise to not interfere in their marriage arguments, such that if she escaped to another country, he would not try to bring her back, she was hoping. And so she set out to make a plan to flee to Rome to be with her sister Marie. Her plan was to escape to Italy, outside the jurisdiction of her husband, court, and king, like people do now as well. You know, it's like if you're wanted for a crime in one country, just like go to another country. And if they don't extradite you, then you can just like live there. Her complices in this plan were her brother Philippe, her sister Marie, like long distance helper in Rome, their loyal friend, the Chevalier de Rohan, and Hortense's servant, Nanon. So not the governess spy, like an okay servant, Nanon. Hortense didn't tell her other sisters, like she didn't think Olympe would support this or Marianne, and she also planned to leave her children behind. Again, judge her or not, but like, she had to get out of there. And this was a culture, like, no one in all of her court trials were like, oh, but she, the mother needs to be with the children. Like, that was not a thing that people thought about there. So her plan was that if she was negotiating from outside of the French legal system, that AC might give her a more favorable financial settlement. And frankly, she just had to get the fuck away from this nightmare husband. In the month leading up to the escape, she was so nervous she became sick and unable to eat. Her sister, who didn't know about this, was like, everything okay with you? And she's just like, eh, I'm fine. But then, on the night of June 13th, 1668, Hortense ran away. And what happened next? We're going to talk about in part two. I mean, it's a natural cliffhanger. I can't not end things at this point. So thank you all for listening to this Vulgar History Podcast. I think we've got some real options here for when we get to the... I, I truly don't know how many episodes this is going to be, but Hortense, her story, a lot happens in it. So, but a lot of good options for the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. Like, I think the nominees at this point, we've got Marie Sidonie, although she did kind of, she went back to her husband. Like, we don't hate that necessarily, but we'll see. Marie, always there for her. Philippe, I think, very supportive. Nanon, the servant, like, some good options there. AC is a rotted individual. And he will pop up a couple more times, just like not him interacting with her, but just like him doing some stuff. But thank God this part of her, this era of her life has passed. I do think that Cardinal Mazarin is a good option for So This Asshole episode on Patreon, but we'll see if I have the stomach for that. Anyway, yeah. So thank you for listening to Vulgar History. You can send me feedback at vulgarhistory.com. There's a little button you can push there to send me feedback as well. You can also, you know, send me messages on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, where I'm going to be posting, or I will by the time this comes out, the picture that got my attention of Hortense and her Sailor Moon hair. Iconic. If any of you is an artist and you could like draw Hortense as Sailor Moon, I mean, you know, let your inspiration run wild. I'm also on Twitter. I'm on Twitter less just because that is, uh, I've been finding it sort of noxious place, but I do go there. I checked, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm on Instagram all the time. Twitter, I check like once a day. Anyway, Twitter at Vulgar History. And you can support this podcast, patreon.com slash Ann Foster Writer. That's where if you pledge 
a dollar, like at least a dollar a month, then you get early access to new episodes of Vulgar History. If you pledge at least five dollars a month, you get that. You get the free, the early access to Vulgar History, but you also get access to um, the Patreon-only mini episodes. I call them mini episodes. They're like three hours long. Um, Vulgar Peace Theater with me, Lana Wood Johnson, and Alison Epstein, as well as the So This Asshole episodes about shitty men from history. That's all on Patreon. And you can also shop Vulgar History merch at vulgarhistory.store. You can use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. Whenever I see a sale on that store, it makes me so happy, especially when I see someone's use those codes, because I know, like the store, like anyone can see that store and buy any of the stuff, but I know it's a TITSOUT Brigade member when you're using one of those codes. So love it. Yeah, so I'll be here again next week with Hortense Part 2. The story continues on. I'll just give you this one like tantalizing detail to look forward to, which is that as she escapes across Europe, she wears pants. It's another lady pants situation, like picturing Christina, Leonora, Catalina, Hortense all just like running around continental Europe at the same time, all in pants. It's just like, what a time to be alive. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Keep your pants on and your tits out, and I'll talk to you all next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.